Season two of the FinTech Marketing Podcast has landed. Join me, Eric Fulweiler, Chief Marketing and Commercial Officer here at 11FS, as I talk directly to some of the most influential CMOs in the world of FinTech and financial services. I'm going to be asking them how they build brands, how they drive growth with modern-day marketing. This season, I also have a new co-host, Mariette Ferreira, our marketing director here at 11FS. She will be talking to the people getting down and dirty on the marketing front lines with roundtable chats from some of the best in the business. Subscribe today on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out. That's FinTech Marketing Podcast by 11FS. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest-performing banks with cost-income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you Wealth of Fine Bed Open Banking from Tink, an investment app, Lana Star breaches advertising rules, and Charlie Bit My Finger video sells for £500,000. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 532 of Fintech Insider. My name is Kate Moody, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co host, Sarah Koshansky. How are you doing, Sarah? I am doing well, thank you. I am going to be very British and do that thing where I'm like, the weather is much better than it has been. And I don't want to talk about the S word, but it has appeared today. And that's making (laughs) my mood lift extraordinarily because for those people who are not in the UK, we've had the coldest, wettest spring on record and it's made me very grumpy. Well, I was going to say, it's not very exciting, but I've got an enormous backlog of washing that needs doing now. So yeah, it's just going to be constant laundry for the next. So that's kind of as exciting as life gets for me nowadays. You know, it should be some bathing, but it's just washing backlogs, sadly. (laughs) Yeah, this is just life in lockdown, really. (laughs) Um, Of course, we're not alone. We're joined by some awesome guests, making a very welcome return to Fintech Insider. We have Emily Nagant, Fintech correspondent at Financial News. Thanks for joining us, Emily. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. I'm really happy to be here. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much for making the time. Looking forward to getting your take on things. And alongside Emily and making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Daniel Shillian, Tink founder and CEO. How are you doing today, Daniel? I'm great. I'm, it's it's so lovely to be on a UK podcast also where weather is the, the key first topic because that's exactly the same thing as in Sweden. So I can report it's it's raining um, and uh, we are waiting for summer. That's good to know. I mean, I think sometimes we should just scrap the fintech focus and just use this as like a global weather update for our, for our listeners, you know, because we often have so many guests from different parts of the world. We get good coverage, I think. Um, but anyway, let's jump straight in. We've got lots to cover today. So first up, a story about Finextra, Wealthify Embed Open Banking from Tink in their investment app. UK robo-advisory platform Wealthify is using payment initiation services from Tink to enable users to load and top up investment funds without leaving the app. Investors can now consent to connect their bank account in the Wealthify app or webpage and complete their payment in just a few steps. In June 2020, Wealthify became a wholly owned subsidiary of insurance and investment giant Aviva and is set to double its 50,000 investors in the coming year. Starting out as a stocks, shares and general investment accounts platform, it has since expanded into ethical investments, junior stocks and shares ISAs and self-invested personal pensions. This partnership follows Tink's 85 million euro investment round at the end of 2020, laying the foundations for the firm's rollout of payment initiation services across Europe. So firstly, you know, Daniel, congratulations on, on this partnership. Really exciting to see. Can you tell us a bit more about, about it, what this means for Tink? Uh, I mean, first of all, it, it's uh, super exciting to be working with the Wealthify team. Uh, we, uh, we love teaming up with people who care deeply about UX conversion and customer happiness, really. And, and that's something that we really feel uh, from, from the Wealthify side. Um, basically, open banking, the, the, the open banking payment landscape is divided into to two parts. One would be uh, a classical checkout solution where you replace a, a card payment or similar with an open banking payment, bank-to-bank account, basically. 
And the, the other use case, uh, which is actually growing super fast for us, is where you take an existing bank transfer and you just make the UX so much better. So previously, uh, and we run this across multiple markets already, but what a um, robot advisor or similar can do is that instead of giving you a reference number, uh, a bank account, a due date, and you know, tons of information, and you have to go and copy paste stuff to your bank and then send money and hope that you know, three days later it's going to arrive, you can embed all of that process to execute the payment, basically dragging money f- f- from your incumbent bank or whatever you want to fund this transaction with uh, into the Wealthify app without leaving the app. And uh, I mean, Tink is now live in in 18 markets and and important for us is to partner with pioneers because we're basically creating this market uh, together. And and in the UK, Wealthify is is surely one of those shiny examples of of customers that you really want to work together with. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think it would definitely be good to dig into some of that those elements around conversion and kind of the customer experience in a little while. Um, obviously, we touched on the intro, your, your funding round late last year, um, obviously kind of big plans for the business. You mentioned you're in 18 markets already. Um, how significant is this particular partnership for, for Tink's European expansion? And kind of what have you guys got next on the horizon? Um, I mean, we are equally proud of all of our 300 customers across these uh, 18 markets, uh, for sure. I think that the UK market has... Uh, been a market that has picked up significantly for us over the past uh, one, one and a half year. Uh, we have customers as, as PayPal, as Zero, Wealthify, and, and Snoopy, etc. So, um, uh, and, and Wealthify would be a, a some, something that we're very proud of and, and uh, where we have similar partnerships with, with other trading platforms across other markets. But I think that this is actually the first one in the UK, which obviously makes it special for us. Yeah, no, absolutely. Sarah, what's what's your take on this? I think it's really interesting. I think it's um, a great use case for these money movement APIs. So it, those of us who spend a lot of time talking about open banking, spend a lot of time defining the different sorts of APIs that are under the UK open banking spectrum. And if you have listened to our last After Dark, you'll have heard us uh, go on about it for, for quite a lot longer. Um, but one of the, the use cases we're seeing popularize um, the, the APIs to, to, to move money is particularly within the wealth management space. Because exactly to Daniel's point, um, moving money from my bank account into my, you know, uh, robo-advisor is a pain in the right now. It's exactly to his point. I have to go in and I have to check the references the same and it takes three days before I even know if it's got there. Um, and so we've seen, you know, other, other players in this, in this space have, have really gone in for it. You know, Nutmeg has enabled it with, with Trulair and um, I believe Money Farm has enabled with, with another player as well. So I think it's, I think it's really interesting. I think it's a really good use case to get people used to using this way of moving money because obviously here in the UK we're quite wedded to our debit cards um, and you know trying to top up an account using a debit card costs the, 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 the you know the, the acceptee a fee because they're essentially a merchant and it's very complicated and so the more we can do with moving money directly between bank accounts simply and easily and also, I should be emphasized, it's more secure to do it that way. Again, to Daniel's point, you put the wrong number in and my money goes into Kate's account and I don't know where it's gone. And <laughs> the, the robo-advisor just says, oh, no, we got your money. It's gone into the account you specified. And I'm like, that wasn't mine. Um, so, yeah, I think in, in the short, you know, the short version of it, it's basically it's a really good thing to see more of. I think it's a really good way of getting people used to this tool, which has a huge amount of benefits um, across financial services. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, obviously, we talk about sort of improving the customer experience. But I think for in the investment space, this could be huge, because, you know, you lose three days and potentially an investment opportunity is completely changed or the scenario that you're looking to invest in is completely changed. So this could, it's not just a a nice to have potentially, it's something that could completely transform the investment experience that a customer has. Um, Daniel? I think that that open banking payments, as you say, it has just exploded for us over the past uh, 12 months. So um, if you'd ask me in January last year, you know, we maybe we did like a few 10,000 payments uh, per month. Now we are close to 2 million payments per month and the growth rate is just uh, crazy. And uh, one of the, the major ones uh, across uh, many of our markets is actually the, the top up of a, uh, you know, a PayPal or a Klarna account or, or uh, your Wealthify account. I think that that are... Those are brilliant uh, examples of 
of how open banking can be leveraged. Not to talk about the, the cost structure here, which is, uh, I mean, it, you, you typically should be able to save something like 80% on your payment cost uh, going from a traditional payment method onto open banking rails instead. Sarah, are you going to say something? Sorry. Oh, yeah, no, I, no, I was actually going to make the, the, the point about um, cost savings as well. And um, one of the things that I was, I'm going to be really interested to see is whether those cost savings are passed back on to, to consumers or users. I mean, you, the only way, the only real example, tangible example I can think of this before is where you used to be able to top up your Monzo account with a debit card and they phased it out because, as I said, it cost Monzo to accept your payment via a debit card. It actually cost them money. So they, that's why they pushed everybody onto, onto doing bank transfers. Um, now, obviously, Monzo had never charged you for that transaction, but that's why they had to phase it out because it was no longer sustainable. What I'm going to be really interested to see, particularly when we see this being moved more into to merchants. So, for example, if you're topping up Klarna, that's one thing. But if you're then using, um, a, you know, an API payment from Klarna to okay, ASOS, big, big merchant here, I want to know if I'm going to get a cheaper price than I am for using a debit card. But then, of course, you get into the, the realms of, of regulation because we had this this thing here in the UK until the EU laws came in. I don't know if they'll go out again now. I'm a bit lost on that. But you used to have to pay more to use a credit card than a debit card, if you remember, on, on websites here in the UK. And again, that was to do with processing costs. So um, entirely to Daniel's point, open banking has a huge amount of potential. But what I really want to find out and see in the industry is where the cost savings end up being passed back to. Is it is it me as a consumer? Is it you know, the, 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 the fintechs, is it, you know, where does it go? Or does that money just go back into the people who had a lot of its pockets to start with, which would be really disappointing. <laughs> Emily, have you got a prediction to make? I don't necessarily have a prediction, but it's interesting that Sarah brings it up because I think, I can't exactly remember which banks it was, but there was a, a, a big bank in the UK that not too long ago claimed that the cost of open banking had been underestimated massively um, by the regulators when it was ruled that all the CMA9 had to start moving everything over to open banking over the last few years and that actually it's taken them a lot longer and cost them a lot more money to do it. And although in the long run, open banking is obviously going to be good for everybody, some of the larger organisations are annoyed about how much they're having to spend to make it happen. And so while eventually, yes, we'd hope that those cost savings would go back to consumers in the form of better interest rates or whatever it might be, um, at the moment, I think probably the banks are more concerned about how much they're having to spend on making this happen. That that was something that came up, particularly when we did our after dark. Um, and, it, you know, the banks were, were complaining in the sense that it was foisted upon them. Um, I, I see their point to a certain extent. And we were discussing it in the context of open finance. And obviously, open finance is a much, much bigger potential. It hasn't been decided yet project. And if, if that's going to happen, you know, who's going to pay for it? But on the other hand, I don't think it had to cost as much as it did a lot of them. I think some of them made their lives a lot more difficult than they had to, and it took a lot longer than it needed to. And hopefully they will have learned from that about, you know, uh, how, how to implement new products and services um, that attach to their core systems in a more efficient way. So I can see both sides of that debate. But I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with Emily. I think the big banks are quite likely to dig their heels in and, and not wish to part with any um, cost benefits, shall we say. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, we don't want to kind of can't spend the whole show taking, talking about you know, open banking and open finance. But I'm interested, Daniel, to get your perspective. And obviously, this is an open banking initiative. So we know we've talked a lot about you know, open finance as the next step. You know, is there anything when you look at these types of partnerships, particularly with investment companies, that you think open finance will be able to enable that at the moment is, is a bit of a blocker or you guys haven't been able to solve for yet? Are there kind of uh, opportunities that you'd like to be able to explore if open finance becomes a reality? Well, I mean, Tink has been around now for almost 10 years. So the first eight of those, we, we've operated as, a, as an unregulated company. And now the, uh, for the last two years, obviously been regulated by, by PSD2. We have been doing what, what is now labeled as open finance for at least the, the past eight years, meaning that we aggregate data both about liabilities, about pensions, uh, about uh, trading information. And uh, in, in some of the markets, and that just depends on demands and how much time we've had, out, had to, to build out um, connectivity, uh, we already, for investment services, uh, offer our customers to aggregate um, investment data to make a super smooth onboarding. So previously, you used to have 
uh, paper forms and PDFs that you, you scanned and sent in and say, well, this is me authorizing my new uh, brokerage account to move mon- money or move these investments from the previous uh, bank, etc. And now we just aggregate that uh, through the Think platform instead. And you say, well, I authorize immediately. So when you enter the new account in a wealth- Wealthify environment or similar, then all of those investments are there uh, instantly without you having to do anything. So I think open finance will, will be um, amazing, but, but to be frank, it's already, it's already amazing. It's already here. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Okay. Moving us on to our next story. Um, Lannister breaches advertising rules as misleading security claims continue. Promotions by fintech startup Lannister claiming its payment cards were the world's most secure were deemed misleading and must not be made again by the Advertising Standards Authority. However, days after the ruling, paid promotional posts on behalf of the company have continued to spread the same claim on social media. The tagline also remains on the firm's website as of the 25th of May, along with supporting posts that state that their Vault payment card is the most secure payment card ever created. Despite its history of controversy, Lannister got approved by the FCA to provide payment services earlier in May this year. Lannister is now an EMD, or Electronic Money Directive, agent of Muddler, a separate payments as a service business working with the likes of Revolu. Lannister describes himself as a payment card and account provider built to match the millennial lifestyle and now says it's on the path to being worth £10 billion. So, uh, Emily, you wrote this story. Um, Let's come to you first. I'd love to get your take on it as well. I love talking about this company. It's so interesting to me. Um, So actually, this is a really good story for me to be talking about on this podcast because I first looked into this claim that they have of having the world's most secure payment card back in October or November. And it was one Sarah Kachansky that I messaged asking for tips on who I should speak to in the fintech world for like, you know, has this ever been done before? Is this a real claim? Um, and she was very helpful. I got some very good information back then. Um, so it's now interesting to see that the ASA have ruled that actually, yes, that Lannister cannot claim to have the world's most secure payment card because um, at least in, in the eyes of the ASA, the evidence that Lannister provided didn't really encompass the ability to prove that it was more secure than every other payment card in the world. And actually, the evidence that they did supply dated back to 2018, so it was pretty old evidence that they had anyway. Um, and I think I remember when I did speak to somebody back in November about all this stuff, they, they told me that card, similar cards have been used in Asia before, so it was no by no means that, you know a, a novel invention that you can have for anybody listening that doesn't know, on a Lannistar card, there is a keypad on the back of it that has a small screen that will provide a, a one-time pin. So you use your smartphone app to create a one-time number that you can then input into the keypad on the card, um, which will then authorize that card to make a one-time transaction. Um, so in that sense, there are two unique numbers being generated for every transaction you want to do. Um, and that's what they think makes it the most secure card um, in the world, or at least they did. So yeah, and then onto the the side about Lannister and this being kind of a track record for them. Um, and the 10 billion price tag, they've yet to have any outside investment from what we can see. Um, they just kind of say that they're going to be worth 10 billion um, at some point, which is always an interesting thing for a company to, to claim. So um, we'll see if they ever get there. But at the moment, any reports to the, whether or not they've raised funds outside of family and friends are very sketchy. So sketchy i like that could use could use the word sketchy um daniel we've talked a lot on the show over the previous episodes about kind of the increasing use of you know, influencer marketing you know, social media's role in marketing kind of fintech space you know what's what's your take on it i mean i i have to be honest and say that i i had not heard about the company before it certainly sounds like an exciting uh, story my when just hearing you talk about it my first reflection is like well i guess that every entrepreneur in the beginning will will look and sound like a complete idiot and maniac uh, and then uh, some of us just manage to transition from the idiot to someone who actually do something and it's <laughs> very very hard to know who's going to be who uh, to start with I, I'd say that if if people would just listen to Elon Musk five ten years ago they would say like he's a he's an absolutely idiot uh, Tesla cannot be worth you know X number of billions, etc. Um, 
And uh, I guess that's that's part of the beauty. Um, and then, of course, there's going to be people taking advantage of of uh, of that fact and and create close to scams. Uh, but but I'm definitely not say not saying that that these guys are are scam. But it's um, it's a fine balance for sure. I think the interesting thing is that in this case, you'd give a company a 10 billion price tag, assumedly, because it has a unique business proposition, right? Um, and if you take away the idea of a world's most secure payment card, then Lannistar's proposition isn't that dissimilar to what else is out there in terms of digital banking. But the interesting parts are, if you look at its business model, it doesn't have any real licensing authorizations itself. Everything it produces is by an agreement with another company, whether that's modular for its banking services or MasterCard and GPS for its debit cards. And it's intending to do everything like that going forward, at least until the point it launches. Right now, those cards aren't active. You can't use them. The other thing that made them very notable, at least in the eyes of the media, was the way it went about launching. It decided to come out of stealth, if you will, um, by giving up to 3,000 influencers equity in the company in exchange for tweeting and posting on social media about the cards that you can't use and can't get yet. Um, And that was how they were going to get there. So this idea of influencer marketing, particularly in the financial promotion, has been a really hot topic when it comes to Anastar because it's, you know, what are they doing that's in line with the rules, Um, especially when they didn't have authorization, when they started doing all of this stuff. That was something that the FCA looked at back then. So that's all very interesting as to how they will then be able to take the idea forward because so far press for them has not been very positive. Emily's being nice when she says that. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I just, well, the point I just wanted to make was I won't go on to, I won't talk about Elon Musk two weeks in a row because I can't handle the tweet abuse. Um, but I think the interesting thing here is, is uh, Lannister is a, an interesting case because yes, they have done an awful lot of things that if you just rack them all up and you're watching it as, you know, people like Emily and myself are, you're going, mm, yeah, not sure. You're not doing this. It's not one mistake that people, that they've, corrected course it's sort of one thing after another and after another um and i think the point about um sort of uh, celebrity influences is a really interesting one because a couple of the big apps um neobanks whatever you want to call them we can't call them banks in the u.s anymore so account providers um in the u.s have uh, which particularly aim themselves or target teen or, or younger audiences have been using um uh, sort of celebrity influences or, or is it just influences i don't know i'm too old influences from from the likes of youtube to to promote their products and those influences have also been sort of you know giving away prizes and, and bringing people in that way and i have serious questions about the responsibility of doing that you know, come in, get this account because me, who has no financial expertise whatsoever, but has got 700 million followers on TikTok is telling you to. I I think if it's buy a pair of trainers, that's one thing. If it's invest your money in this product or buy this product or trust your money to this product, then I'm I'm, I'm much more skeptical. Um, I think just the other point I wanted to make was Okay, yes, Lannister, we can put that to one side because they have a, a history. But the ASA has been really on it this week. So we've also seen Luno, which is um, a, sort of a, a cryptocurrency company, and uh, Laybuy, which is um, a buy now, pay later company. Both of them have been sort of um, slapped down by the regulators this week, again, for, for misleading advertising. Um, and I think that's something, to come back to the point I started on, we're going to see a lot more of. So we've seen it in the US. The regulators told banks, like Chime, he got... Chime can't be Chime Bank because it's not a bank. It relies on a third party to, to provide that banking license. And it's cracked down and said, you know, you must all take bank out of your name. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that over here as well, particularly after what happened with Wirecard last year, where we have an awful lot of consumers in this country, and I'm sure across Europe, who aren't sure who their money is held with. So to use Lannistar as an example, Lannistar doesn't hold your money, exactly to Emily's point, a third-party bank holds your money theoretically in a ring-fenced account, but it's not protected under the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. Now, whether the Financial Services Compensation Scheme is fit for purpose is a whole other question. What is important here is do consumers need to know where their money is, what it is they're buying. And I think that, I think that is true. I think that is accurate. And I think the regulators have been sort of caught on the hop by the proliferation of many different services and business models, um, making all sorts of promises to consumers and customers. And I will say a lot of them to vulnerable consumers and customers, people who couldn't access financial services and products through more mainstream channels, um, and is now scrambling to catch up. So I think we are going to see a lot more action, um, across the UK's regulators and possibly across Europe as well, clamping down on these kind of misleading claims. The interesting thing as well, sorry, Sarah, just on that last point about authorization and different regulators with Lannistar is that they've really gone global with this effort. 
influencers in India, Turkey, Russia, the US, Brazil, everywhere are being contacted to promote Lannister because as I've been told previously by former employees of the company, you know, it was kind of, if you have some followers, they'll reach out to you and see if you want some equity in the company <laughs> in exchange for promoting the card. Um, and at what point does a does a regulator in countries like Turkey then think, okay, well, this this card's being promoted here, but we have no sign that this card's ever going to be available here. How is that fair financial promotion? I mean, you have to consider that point. No, absolutely. Um, Daniel, I was interested, obviously Sarah's touched on you, this is quite a UK-focused story at the moment, but you know, what, what are you seeing in terms of you know, the European regulators and kind of this, this take on the role of influencers and advertising standards across Europe more broadly? So I'm making the exact same reflection that it seems that that the influencers, first of all, they it's surprisingly they can give financial advice without obviously knowing anything about anything in this space, and also that they apparently get away with it as long as, as long as they say, well, this is a paid commercial, and then they they do a little speech about it. Um, I would be surprised if if that can can continue. My uh, reflections also from this particular story is probably also around the, the Fire Festival documentary, if you remember. Wasn't it a bunch of, of influencers who also promoted that, that festival? Maybe we'll see a, a follow-up documentary by Emily here soon. I, uh, yeah, if somebody wants to pay me, I'm sure one can be made between me and Izzy Woodford over at Sifted or Handler. We're, uh, we're always specking out new, new new documentaries on this show. So yeah, we've got quite a backlog now of different <laughs> different Netflix shows that we're, we're going to pitch. So that's kind of the next branch out of 11FS is, is in just kind of the big scandal documentary series, I think, potentially. So cool. Um, we're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, the world's leader in digital payments. Visa's FinTech Fast Track program is the quickest and easiest way to connect to the Visa network and issue payment credentials. Whether you're an up-and-coming neobank, modernizing B2B payments, or launching a new crypto solution, amazing things can happen when your innovation is combined with the power of one of the world's largest payment networks. Learn more about the possibilities at partner.visa.com. With a global consumer panel of 15 million registered members, over 11 years of historic single-source data, and proprietary technology that connects data and simplifies the research process, YouGov is home to the largest collection of constant, entirely permissioned consumer opinion and rich behavioural intelligence in the world. To learn more, visit business.yougov.com. Welcome back. Our next story. NatWest, RBS and Ulster Bank let customers set daily transfer limits. NatWest, the Royal Bank of Scotland and Ulster Bank currently set a default bank transfer limit of £20,000 per day, but this will be reduced to £5,000 per day in a move to tackle authorised push payment scams, also referred to as APP scams. NatWest says that 95% of its customers have never paid someone more than £5,000. Consumer Group Witch has welcomed the move and other larger institutions such as Nationwide and Virgin Money are also considering the option. APP scams have been on the rise during the COVID-19 pandemic, with losses hitting nearly half a billion pounds in 2020. While fraudsters can manipulate people to adjust transfer limits, letting people set their own normal behaviour and creating greater friction is generally positive, as it gives banks another opportunity to warn users about fraud or intervene if they think something is wrong, according to which. Um, Sarah, what's, what's your take on this? Hmm... I'm not convinced this is a solution. <laughs> I think this is this is sort of um, chewing gum over, you know, the crack in the wall of the house kind of thing. I mean, the, the problem with APP is that a lot of the, it, it it's, uses manipulation. It uses psychological manipulation. It uses a combination of, you know, clever um, digital technology to manip- sorry to, to try and um, mirror what your bank's website looks like or an SMS from your bank or, you know, a, a mobile website from your bank um, to try and convince you to, to, to move money into an account that is that is fraudulent um so there's there's a lot of clever trickery going on there's a lot of manipulation going on as well and outside of that when you're looking at um why why this sum of money is so large one of the most common um instances of it is when people transfer you know they think they're transferring the deposit of their house for example and it's been the email has been intercepted by a fraudster and they're actually sending it to another person's account and the solicitor rings you and they're like where's the deposit for your house and you're like i sent it and they're like no you didn't um so i think i think i think that's why they've gone with this twenty thousand pound limit but the 95% of people haven't ever sent more than that 
more than £5,000 because the only time you do that is when you're once in a lifetime or twice in a lifetime, you know, when you're buying a house or maybe buying a car if you have the kind of cash to buy it outright. So I, I just don't think this is enough. I just don't think this is going to have much difference whatsoever. And I think it might actually just be more annoying um, perhaps for, for, for some people. Um, I know that, you know, for example, the, the neobanks, they don't ever let you transfer that much. Like no matter what your settings are, you have to contact them in advance and say, I'm buying a house. Will you lift the restrictions and let me say, and, you know, however much it is. Um, and I I actually think that's probably a better way of doing it because let's face it, if you're transferring more than £5,000, how often is that an impulse decision? And I think that's probably probably where, um, you know, the, the RBS group is coming from. They think it's not ever going to be an impulse decision. You would have thought about it and it gives the bank more opportunities to send you that message which says, are you really sure you're paying the right person? Has somebody convinced you? Is this a scam? All those messages. But I just, I just don't think this is that useful i don't think this is the appropriate solution i think this is a sticking blaster and i don't think it'll have much effect whatsoever honestly it's interesting i think i saw another story this week also from from natwest you know as you mentioned sarah obviously kind of that house deposit use case is probably the most common but they've also apparently you know rolled out a new series of of notifications or prompts around cryptocurrency scams so obviously again that might be a big investment movements of money might be a kind of another another drive of kind of why this is becoming more of an issue, but yeah, I'm inclined to agree that this may be only patching patching the surface. I, I don't think anybody accidentally transfers five thousand pounds. I think if you're transferring five thousand pounds or more, you've really thought about what you're transferring that money for, if that makes sense. So if you get an extra prompt that says you need to raise your limit to do this, or are you sure, or do you trust the person you're sending this money to? I think you've already gone through that thought process, and I think the the scammer or the fraudster has already convinced you that they're they're authentic. Is it's my perspective on it, but I'm not a psychologist, so I don't I don't actually know if that applies to the broader population. Daniel, obviously, you know, you're immersed in the payment space. What what do you think the, the solution could be? So I have two reflections. One would be, first of all, uh, and I'm biased, we, we love NatWest because they're think customer. So now <laughs> I've said that. Uh, the second reflection is, do we think that, that this is going to be, uh, you know, a 10, 20 year problem? And then everyone is so digital savvy that this will never happen. You know, imagine 30 years ago and you meet someone in the street that says, well, you know, I have this really important thing. You need to give me 5,000 pounds in cash immediately. And they did all kind of tricks and nobody would ever <laughs> fall for those tricks. Uh, I wonder if, if um, we'll get to a place where it's just going to be impossible for anyone to be fooled in a digital world or is it kind of the inherent problem of not seeing your counterparty that's going to be an everlasting one or is it just uh, you know our grandparents that us being, being scammed unfortunately right now I don't know. I, I I kind of think as clever as we think we're getting, the criminals are always one step ahead of us. I'm, I'm, I'm that may be being very pessimistic, but I I'm sort of fairly convinced. I'm sorry that the, the fraudsters and the criminals out there are, are more advanced than an awful lot of tech security teams, and and that that may be unfair. But um, I I I think I agree with you, Daniel. I don't I don't think there's ever going to come a point where. Well, sorry, I, I, my perspective is I don't think it's ever going to come a point where fraud disappears because I think humans by their nature kind of want to trust. And I think, it, you know, you, you can distrust something inherently, but I think once you get used to a certain thing, which is moving money digitally, you trust that you trust that mechanism. Um, so you've kind of programmed in behaviorally to do it. So I, I, I think we're always going to get scammed, some of us, hopefully not me, but, you know, there's always a first time. Well, yeah, there's lots of research that kind of shows how widespread how widespread this is. You know, we talked about the kind of numbers in terms of like the volumes of money lost, but you know, I think stats from from YouGov have shown that 34% of Brits claim to have been a victim of obviously fraud or scams. So it's it's really, really widespread. So yeah, it kind of suggests that you're right, Sarah, that actually you know, there is a kind of natural tendency that's quite prevalent and it's criminals that are tapping into this. Um, I'd I'd also say to Daniel's point about, you know, it's only our grandparents that really don't know what they're doing with technology and then um, eventually, you know, they won't be here anymore and then we'll all be able to handle it. I think that'd be quite a pessimistic view of technological technological innovation um, to hope that we're all just going to, like, you know, the state of technology that we have now. I mean, maybe there's something to say in that, like, because we're now generations that are growing up with technology, by the time we get to 70 or 80, we'll have been so used to adapting that we will continue to adapt 
but I also think there will probably come a time when there will be a technology that I won't understand and I won't be able to handle it either. Um, so, and that will probably be where, where fraud continues to proliferate in those, in those very specific areas. I'm already at that stage. So yeah, there's already already stuff that's way above my head and I'm only in my thirties. So yeah, it's definitely, definitely going to happen. I mean, what, what impact do you think the pandemic has had on this? And obviously we've talked a lot on the show about how it's driven more and more people to move online, to start using digital banking earlier, sooner, faster than we might have otherwise expected. Um, what changes do you think that will have to the prevalence of these types of scams? Well, we know that scams of the number volume of scams have rocketed during the pandemic because so many people are doing more things online. And to Emily's point, some of them are people who are doing things for the first time. Some of them are people who are doing basic things the first time. And then some of them are people who perhaps are a little bit more digitally savvy, but are having to do more complex things the first time. And to my earlier point, the, the criminals sort of jumped on it they were there faster than you know the pandemic had only been announced and we saw a rise in you know financial crime I think it was April last year that we we had instantly seen increases in fraud and some of them were sort of you know more obvious things like you know text money to receive your vaccine early or you know all that kind of thing um but but I, I think we've seen a huge rise in fraud. And I think the, the banks just weren't ready for the combination of a huge increase in people using their digital services over and above their, their physical services and the huge rise in fraud that happened at the same time. I think it was just too much for them because they couldn't focus on both. It's probably not a very financial take, but I do actually wonder how, to what extent the phone companies and phone networks have a bit of responsibility over the proliferation of scams, particularly text messaging scams. Um, because I don't know about everybody else, but my phone has seen so many more text message scams during the pandemic from people claiming to be Royal Mail, DHL, even phone networks saying, you know, your bill's due, that this kind of thing for phones that I've never had a c- contract with. Um, and I wonder whether, where the, where the balance lies, because we're talking here about what financial companies and banks have to do to get their customers to stop engaging in fraud um but also do other kinds of companies also have have a responsibility there too yeah and no, i think that's a super interesting point um and i think this this particular kind of fraud because you know, i think as we've talked about it is individuals who are being hoodwinked or tricked you know there aren't as many safeguards in place you know despite kind of lots of us are saying this is a big issue and a big problem um you know victims aren't necessarily eligible for reimbursement under kind of standard compensation schemes so there does seem to be a bit of a gap in between where i think you know there are some you know voluntary codes i think some of the banks have signed up to voluntary codes um, i'd be interested to see if if again the same sort of voluntary system exists in the telecoms sector but yeah it feels like there is a bit of a a, a gray space where there's, there's not kind of systematic protections in place that maybe might force companies to take it more seriously. I do have a favourite story just on that in that I remember seeing during the pandemic there was a, a couple numbers that were being used for Royal Mail scams and somebody went about setting up accounts on Gumtree advertising free puppies and attached those mobile numbers to those <laughs> to those adverts so that then the people doing the scamming were getting inundated with claims for free puppies. Um so I think maybe if more of us did that, that would be hilarious. But Listeners, please, please take note and, and do everything you can. So <laughs> um, on to our next story. Bank of England's Bailey calls cryptocurrencies dangerous while US bank chiefs express caution. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey said on Monday that cryptocurrencies and similar assets were a danger to the public, reiterating his long-standing concern about them. When addressing the British Parliament's Treasury Committee, Bailey said, I'm sceptical about crypto assets, frankly, because they're dangerous and there's a huge enthusiasm out there. Bailey has previously said people should only invest in cryptocurrencies if they're prepared to lose all their money and warned that assets such as Bitcoin do not fulfil key functions of a standard means of payment. Bitcoin has lost more than 40% of its value since hitting a record high last month. Meanwhile, several CEOs of leading US banks have expressed caution about dealing in cryptocurrencies. Who wants to go first on this one? I mean, I think Bailey has a point. Um, I I think it's even even among Bitcoin heads and crypto favourites, they they all recognise that the cryptocurrency as it stands does not meet the terms for what is needed to be used as a standard payment service. You can't use Bitcoin to buy a pizza because one day that pizza is worth 10p and one day that pizza is worth 50 grand. Um, so I, I think Bailey definitely has a point there. And I, I, I think at the moment anyway, regulators are moving towards categorizing cryptocurrencies as a bit like 
when you make an investment with a stock trading app, they just need to have the the taglines on them that say, you know, your capital is at risk and you shouldn't really be engaging in speculative assets unless you are prepared to lose all your money. Um, so, and the fact that other banks are getting involved in that is also, you know, it, it makes sense for them to do so. Where it becomes interesting is where those same banks are then engaging in launching trading desks for cryptocurrencies and viewing currencies like Bitcoin or Ether and the rest as assets that could be used to, to be invested in. Um, if institutional investors are going to give credence to these assets, then should they also not have a responsibility not to trash them in front of the US Senate? Um, so Sarah, what's your view? I think, and I haven't got much more to add, except that I think that what, what Bailey may be, and I, I haven't read both these articles, so forgive me, um, but I, or, or rather, I haven't read exactly what, what Andrew Bailey said and, and the context of it. But I think if this is all he's said, then he is perhaps being a little short-sighted. I think um, there is a definite distinction between, you know, the average person on the street putting their life savings into Dogecoin and banks looking at how cryptocurrencies can be used in a broader way to, you know, enhance financial stability and, and introduce new new mechanisms for, for, for currency control. Um, I, but I don't, I don't, I don't know if that nuance was there. I mean, I, I think, I don't think there's a lot you can do about people who are going to invest in, well, I don't think there's a lot you can do about people who are going to invest in Bitcoin because they're going to do it anyway. Backtrack on that a little bit because the FCA did do a um, survey a few months ago or a study a few months ago, and um, you know it asked a load of questions of people who who admitted or, or well, not admitted I suppose claimed that they invested in high risk investments, and forty percent of those people said that they didn't think there was any risk of financial loss for investing in high risk investments. Now the FCA just called them high risk investments in inverted commas, but there was a, a definite undertone of talking about cryptocurrency there. Um, so I think on the one hand, you know, there's only so much you, you can do um, about kind of if people are determined they're going to put their money into these things, they're probably going to put their money into these things anyway. On the other hand, is there a bigger question about how we regulate investments? But it can't just be cryptocurrency. It has to be investments more broadly because you can't really just draw the line at cryptocurrency. You then have to think about what happened with GameStop and think about how Reddit influences that and how many people are using all these day trading apps to pour all their money into to Apple or Microsoft and then, you know, not understanding about diversification and, you know, all, all the different things involved with investing. So I think, I think if this is all Bailey said, then it's a very narrow minded perspective. But if somebody had asked him a question specifically, <laughs> should, should the average consumer invest in, in, in cryptocurrencies? He said no, because they're dangerous. Then that's a fair response. Um, I think more, there's a much broader conversation to be had, but, um, Simon Taylor isn't here. And I'm sure if he was here, we'd still be hearing about it for, for 15, 20 minutes later. Cause I know he has a much more well thought out perspective on this than I do. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a lot of uh, sparring backwards and forwards on internal 11FS channels around this story this week, for sure. Um, Daniel, what's what's your take? Well, this this would be another amateur hour response then. But but still, uh, when I talk to uh, our um, trading company customers, they, they definitely seen a spike in uh, more speculative trading over the past uh, year. So trading that is not really investment in a typical traditional sense but more of of gambling replacing gambling and uh well that's an interesting observation if, if that pattern is significantly changing i i just assume that you would you would need to eventually see that kind of investment being <clears throat> regulated more like gambling than investment uh about how you can advertise for whom you can advertise etc secondly i mean it, it's obviously so that the jury is still out there for a lot of these uh, new currencies that is that has not the traditional backing of of a, a country or a state. Uh, if that's going to be another tulip mania, or if it's going to be you know you know the way we pay in the future, uh, it's going to be extremely interesting to to see. And of course, as an entrepreneur, I love big hairy bets. Uh, so just disqualifying every, every everything that seems complicated would not be. Um, what I would suggest, but but uh, it's it's certainly going to be an interesting uh, area going forward. You can also kind of respect these um, people who who used to have monopoly on printing currency that they are now a bit worried about what's going to happen <laughs> when that monopoly is taken away from them. 
I think just I I I, I don't um, I'm not expecting anybody to have the answer, but to pick up on your point there, Daniel, where do you draw the line between gambling and investing? How do you decide what is gambling and what isn't investing? And I'm and I'm not you know throwing shade on anything in particular. I just I just don't know where if somebody asked me to do that to make you know to define the difference. I don't know that I'd be able to do it. And I know a reasonable amount inve- about investing and a quite small amount about gambling, as in like, you know, roulette and poker, but I get the gist of it. And I don't know that I would be able to give you a definition that lawmakers could use. I don't think I could. I don't think I could either. But I suppose, yeah, to, to Daniel's point about the trends that you've seen with some of your investment partners, obviously, we have seen lots of banks and neobanks introducing more you know greater friction into the customer experience to try and provide you know, gambling blocks or ways to kind of support customers make gambling blocks whereas you know what we talked about at the start of the show was you know reducing friction to making investments so i suppose how do you guys as you guys are building out your your offerings and you're working with your partners you know, how do you kind of strike that balance between making on one hand payments frictionless when it helps the customer to meet kind of reasonable outcomes but without going too far to move to Sarah's point to kind of blurring that line between gambling and investments so I I am sorry to say that we are all about uh, fast frictionless cheap uh, and then this would you can say that that would be weapons of mass instructions but but then we would just leave it to our customers to use that in a sensible way can I just uh, to pick up on the point not not to throw this back at you Daniel but a lot of those um, you know, financial services companies have said you can block spending and you can block gambling. Also, allow you to buy cryptocurrency through their platforms. So, I would, I would question, <laughs> question their their motives on some of those things. It's interesting that you talk about greater friction, though, Kate, because today I think it was NatWest that launched a uh, an alert that went out on its banking app to all customers about cryptocurrencies, advising them to be careful and know the risks of potential scams that they could be getting involved in, um, because obviously cryptocurrencies still also have that side of them where they are being frequently used as a way to launder money from people. Um and also for context, uh, Bailey was speaking at a hearing about Greensill and was asked about the dangers of financial innovation. Um, <laughs> okay, so well, that's, the, that's yeah, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> I stand so by his my crypto statement. Assets, <laughs> his crypto assets comment kind of came in the context of that. Um, but I think from the Bank of England's point of view, the things that they're worried about are, you know, whether or not crypto assets can be properly regulated as an investment or gambling, like you said, Sarah, and not so much about whether or not they'd be used as a means of payment. Where they do have the threat in terms of payment, however, is that most central banks, including the Bank of England, are now developing their own digital currencies, which they then hope that consumers and households will use to do any manner of things. And if you're cracking down on crypto assets, you know, while digital currencies from central banks and cryptocurrencies are completely different things, they only really have similarities in the technology that they use. Um, telling a regular Brit on the street that Bitcoin's bad, but you should use Britcoin um, to use the moniker it's been awarded uh, probably is going to be a bit confusing. So they really have to consider their messaging. Okay. Um, anyone else got any any more thoughts? But one thing we've not touched on, I suppose we talked in the intro to this story about the U.S. banks, you know, CEOs of U.S. banks who have also kind of come out and continued their uh, persistent sort of caution and scepticism about about crypto uh, in terms of who they lend against and, and who they bank. So, Sarah, do you think that's the kind of that side of coin is is also interesting? I think those um, execs are hedging their bets because there's this, you know, as I said, there's this pull push between like, you know, not wanting to offer consumers necessarily, you know, that that, that is obviously quite risky. They could obviously come back and have repercussions, but also a lot of these executives will see that there's a lot of business to be made or to be had in either banking for these, um, you know, for the companies that that provide these services in, in the cryptocurrency world or, you know, providing, you know, trading desks to cryptocurrency. So I, I think they're hedging their bets. I think they're waiting to see what they can and can't do to be honest with you. Um, I, I, I don't know which way it's going to go. But One, one of my favourite juxtapositions is JP Morgan because 
JP Morgan chief executive Jamie Dimon is, has been famously anti-Bitcoin, anti-crypto ever since it kind of burst onto the scene in 2017 um, and has compared it to tulip mania and all the rest. Um, but then this year has kind of had to significantly tone down his opinions because JP Morgan's analyst team is one of the most bullish about Bitcoin out of the major investment banks. And I think at last check had about a 196 thousand dollar price target for bitcoin um i think it actually might even be higher now um so it's quite interesting to see how the how the internal views of cryptocurrencies and then the ceo views can often be quite different and um, particularly when the ceos are the ones having to answer to the politicians but no good caller absolutely um okay we're gonna have to move on now as we're getting towards the end of the show so just to round up some of the other stories from this week that we sadly didn't have time to cover but still definitely deserve a shout out so sarah do you want to kick us off sure So the first story is that Curve returns to the crowd for fresh funding round. So Curve, the London-based fintech that combines multiple cards and accounts into one smart card and app, is to return to the crowd for fresh funding five months after sealing a $95 million equity round. Set to go live in May, the crowd-queued campaign comes as the company steps up its plans for expansion in the US and further into Europe and prepares the launch of its much-heralded Curve credit product. Since its record-breaking crowdfund in 2019, which raised £4 million within 42 minutes, Curve's valuation has tripled. In the last year alone, Curve hired over 100 new staff, doubled its customer base to over £2 million, and saw the volume of transactions it processed increase by over £1 billion to £2.6 billion, despite the backdrop of the global pandemic. The founder and CEO of Curve said the company intends to further grow its workforce by around 60%, adding at least 200 employees over the course of 2021. Um, I think it's interesting that we're, we're still seeing, um, you know, UK fintechs turn to the crowd for, for funding, despite the fact that they're, they're doing pretty well at sealing, um, you know, funding from, from other sources, VC hedges, you know, elsewhere. Um, I think, it, you know, the curve, they've got this hugely loyal customer base. And I think that's probably what they're doing here is they're going back to, to offer perhaps those, those current equity holders more equity um, and for those current equity holders to get their mates involved as well. So I, I think it makes sense for them to do it. Um, I, you know, I, good luck to them really i think it doesn't make it doesn't with all those um, ambitious plans they have they're probably going to need the funds so uh, why not have a bash at it whilst um, whilst the iron is hot strike whilst the iron is hot that's the phrase i'm looking for <laughs> um back to you kate Cool. Uh, our next story is over from the blog at Plaid. So Square and Plaid partner to give US merchants a better ACH payment experience. Plaid has partnered with Square to give merchants in the US a better experience regarding ACH payments. Now merchants can accept ACH payments through Square invoices and developers can enable ACH payments through Square Web Payments SDK without worrying about bank authentication or any managed payment complexities. Through the partnership, Square uses a tokenized check system that uses Plaid to allow customers to securely connect their bank accounts for bank payments. This verification option allows customers to quickly enter their bank login credentials to connect an account to enable payments. For businesses that collect payments on high-value orders, the power of Square and Plaid apparently means more certain collections. In addition, Square offers fee-free refunds on ACH payments, a process to make ACH acceptance even easier. Um, I think it's yeah, a really interesting development. It has the potential to make life a lot easier for, for merchants who we know have you know, lots of difficulties just trying to work out you know, the best way to, to move, receive money. Um, and it's been a big week for Square across multiple elements of its business, banking offering more generally. So I think Bloomberg reported earlier this week that you know, a recent update to Square's iOS app update contained references in the code to kind of the, the long-awaited checking and savings account that the industry has been keeping an eye out for ever since they got their, their banking charter approval early this year. So they're really driving across multiple fronts to create a sort of all-encompassing financial ecosystem for their business customers. Um, we've just launched a really great insights show looking at super apps in the consumer banking space, but I really do feel like Square are the kind of super app to watch in the business banking space and kind of really taking on all the different components of running a, a business and trying to make those as intuitive and smooth as possible. So um, keep an eye on Square as per, as per usual. Sarah. Okay, and the last one today is that Zeta has become a unicorn with a $250 million SoftBank-led funding round. Um, so Zeta helps banks and fintech firms launch products. It's the newest to attain the coveted unicorn status after closing the financing round. The banking tech firm co-founded by veteran Indian entrepreneur Bhavan Turakaya said on Monday it had raised $250 million in a round led by SoftBank Vision Fund 2, um, confirming a tech crunch report from mid-April. The new round valued the start 
startup, which has offices in Bangalore and Dubai, at $1.5 billion. That's up from the $300 million valuation that Zeta reported in the second half of 2019. Uh, Zeta has developed a technology stack that helps engage with banks and fintech startups, as well as other online consumer platforms. The thesis is that banks, largely operating on antiquated technologies, today don't have the time and expertise to offer the best experience to hundreds of millions of customers and the fintech firms they serve. Um, this is another example of banking as a service raking in the money. And I think banking as a service is a huge industry right now. I think it has an awful lot of potential. I also think that the market is getting increasingly crowded. There are only so many banks and so many fintechs that need help sorting this this stuff out. And what's interesting for me about Zeta is that perhaps it's going to focus outside of, you know, the US and Europe, which is where a lot of its its peers are, are currently spending their energies. You know, with offices in Bangalore and Dubai, it makes sense that maybe it's looking towards, you know, Asia and, and the Middle East. Um, in which case it, you know, it, it may have a head start on, on the competition. Um, but yeah, banking as a service, not going anywhere anytime soon, but do look for M&A and consolidation in that industry, I would, I would think, in the next couple of years. You heard it here first. Uh, <laughs> and finally, just to wrap us up for today, Charlie bit my finger video to be taken off YouTube after selling for £500,000. As one of the original viral videos, the Charlie Bit My Finger clip is a little piece of internet history. Now, the much-loved clip of baby Charlie gnawing on his brother Harry's finger will be taken off YouTube after it was sold for $760,999 or £538,000 after the Davies Car family auctioned the clip as an NFT. Bids came into the auction page throughout the weekend, but the price dramatically increased in its final hours on Sunday with a battle between two anonymous accounts. 3F Music apparently outbid Meme Master for the video, which has been watched more than 888 million times since it was put on YouTube in 2007. The clip had been due to be removed from the YouTube sharing platform on the 23rd of May following the auction, but at the moment it's still there. Anyone? Anyone bid for that? You guys put, an, put a bid in for that? As much as I love the video, I would not pay £500,000 for it. <laughs> does anyone Does anyone actually have an NFT on the panel today? No. I've also not even seen this video. You've not seen this video? No, it involves children, so I've stayed well away from it. I'm, I'm very bad wow. at viral things, but... It was... Yeah, I mean, it was one of the original virals when virals became a thing. I, I'm aware of it, <laughs> but... Um, I can't say that I've seen it. I, I, yes, I don't have much more to add for that. To be honest, to that be honest with you, I mean, it probably would be a, a debate from the ethics team. But I'm not sure whether I'm allowed to have an NFT, same as I'm not allowed to have cryptocurrencies. I think at this point they're still probably a speculative asset. Would you say? Yes. <laughs> Daniel, are you contemplating moving into NFTs? Is it something you've been following? Something that's floated about at all? So, no, I have no plans. Uh, but I don't think that it's uh, necessarily more strange than some uh, art prices in general. I think that one thing that would hold me back is probably that that to the extent I want to consume art, I want to see it and I want, want it to have it easy, available, etc. <clears throat> of course, you could argue watching that clip over and over again on my computer is, is fairly easy, but, but typically uh, I would have things on, on my walls instead, but I'm definitely not the collector and it will take time for me to move into to the digital world as well. It mainly makes me sad just the idea that it would be taken off YouTube. You know, some of these things are such cultural, cultural icons. It kind of, yeah, it feels sad to me that it might disappear from from the public domain when it's clearly brought joy to, to so many people. I've got like, a, I mean, it's not, sadly, Charlie Bit My Finger is not one of the ones, not, not one of my go-tos, but I do have a, you know, a short list of YouTube videos that I, I go to on days when you just need a bit of a, a bit of a pick-me-up. Um, I can't really see the need for it either because, I mean, it, it's not that you need to remove every picture of Mona Lisa just because, uh, you know, somebody owns it. I think it's this idea of, you know, scarcity driven value, same as the reason why people used to say Bitcoin was worth something in the beginning was because there was only a certain amount of them that will ever be made. Now that's less of the reason why people say Bitcoin has value. But with NFTs, it's the same thing. You know, there was a, a guy who, well, a group of people, I think, who owned a Banksy, sold an NFT of the Banksy and then burned the original Banksy so that the NFT was the only one in existence. Um, although obviously digital images can be copied and proliferated no matter where you are so 
Sarah, I saw a lot of a lot of head shaking there. Is is there an NFT you would buy? Is there something that you have got your eye on? Well, I'm I'm with Daniel. I I, I want something tangible, to be honest with you. Like when I'm, you know, if, if I'm going to buy, and and and, the, and to Daniel's point, the only thing I can see, the, the closest thing I can I can think of is is a piece of art. Um, you know, which, but I I wouldn't wouldn't exactly to Daniel's point, I wouldn't pay money for art that I couldn't hang on my wall. I don't know. I'm also not that obsessed with owning unique things. I don't understand this obsession with having like the only one of something. I don't I don't get it at all. Like if it's a beautiful thing, why not have more than one of it in the world? If you have millions in the bank? Well, yes. But I think my perspective on life might be slightly different generally if I had millions in the <laughs> bank. <laughs> but I, th- I think that's where most of your comes from, essentially, is that, you know, if you do have millions and you don't really know what we, what could you get your other half of Christmas when they can already buy whatever it is they want. Unique items are the things that, that drive the best value. And, and, and NFTs are being used in others, other ways, mostly in terms of smart contracts, you know, the Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, if I pronounce that all correctly, um, the big luxury fashion house is considering using NFTs as a way of providing authentication for its products so that you know that the handbag you bought is legit. Um, and it's that area of smart contracts where NFTs could actually be real world useful, despite the environmental impact of making that contract, I have to say. Well, I mean, yeah, if it's if it's going to have an impact on, on handbags, that's that's much more important than, than thinking about kind of the repercussions for the financial services industry. Absolutely, that's that's number one priority. So, cool. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you very much to everyone who's taken the time to join us. Um, thank you very much to our guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you, Emily? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Emily J. Nicole, and you can read all of my articles at fnlondon.com. Before I recommend doing that, um, Daniel, where can people find out more about you? Uh, think.com uh, and uh, LinkedIn if you want to connect. Cool, cool. Sarah? You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Uh, and as for me, you can find me at Kate Moody on LinkedIn or at kate.moody on Twitter. Thank you very much for listening. If you like what you've heard, please do subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make the show better and helps others to find the show and is massively appreciated. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media, just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye.